0: Following messages by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Father, even as I just shared, um, that is what we're asking for from you is um, the work of your Holy Spirit um, to bring us together as one people, and we know that the community life of our church has been under such strain uh, during this pandemic, but we pray uh, that you would help us as we each are filled with your Spirit to help to maintain the unity that the Spirit has created in Christ. And so we pray even for now as we turn to your Word, unite us under this teaching and the authority of your Word that we would uh, learn from the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we understand the weight of those words, we can get a glimpse of what it means to be living in the presence of your kingdom and the presence of our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm uh, struck by how many books and movies revolve around this theme of revenge. 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 It really struck me, actually, once I started watching all that Korean cinema and TV shows, how much Koreans love the theme of revenge. Um, Why are we drawn to these stories so much? Why, in fact, when we actually watch these revenge movies and read these revenge books, do we find such satisfaction, particularly in that moment in the plot when the person who has suffered such horrible wrongs finally gets to exact revenge on their enemies. There's something so vicariously satisfying about that, isn't there? And I wonder if it's because we actually harbor our own fantasies of getting even with those who have hurt us. And the truth is, because of the limitations of our lives, we don't often get to experience that closure of getting even with people who have hurt us. And so maybe we almost feel like we can live out that fantasy through these shows and books. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas is one of these stories that explores the theme of revenge. The main character is a guy named Edmund Dantes, who seems to have the perfect life. He is engaged to a beautiful woman and is about to become the captain of his own sea vessel. But these three men who are in his life collude together out of their jealousy against him. And they accuse Edmund of treason. And so on the day of his wedding, before the wedding can actually take place, Edmund is arrested and thrown into prison. And during his imprisonment, his father passes away. And one of those men that accused him of treason will do something so underhanded that he will steal his fiancée and marry her himself. Because he jealously longed for her. So there is Edmund rotting in prison, tortured there, and he loses everything. And what Edmund thinks about all day in prison is this. Even if I get out of here one day, and even if I can bring this to a a legal court, that will not be justice. Because whatever punishment the legal system inflicts on these men, Cannot even come close to equaling the suffering that I've experienced because of what they've done to me. And so he comes to the conclusion that the only right thing to do to get real justice for him is to exact his own revenge on them. And while in prison, he meets this Italian priest who teaches him everything from philosophy to the arts to sciences and math. And then, shortly before his death, he tells Edmund where this massive treasure is hidden in this island called Monte Cristo. Not long after revealing that secret, the priest dies. And Edmund will use that occasion to escape the prison. And he goes and he follows the instruction of the priest and finds this great treasure. That's been hidden. And he basically declares. This is a gift of God. God is on my side. Who has now enabled me through this resource. To get revenge on my enemies. Ten years will go by after the discovery of this treasure. And Edmund now emerges. In Rome with a new identity. And he declares himself to be the Count of Monte Cristo. He is now a powerful and learned nobleman with a huge estate. And he then begins a campaign of slowly and methodically destroying the lives of these three men who have sent him to prison. Actually two of them because one of them shows some remorse. And if if you've read the novel or watched any movie adaptations of the story, it's hard not to feel a pretty deep and profound sense of satisfaction when you watch these men get the justice that they deserve. He, he utterly destroys their lives. But even as he finally gets the revenge that he's been fantasizing about for all of these years, Edmund realizes that the pain that he has inflicted on them cannot heal the pain in his own heart. It's only when he discovers the love of a woman named Haiti that Edmund finally finds true freedom from his pain. And he tells Haiti, who would at the very end of the novel become his wife, one word from you has enlightened me more than 20 years of slow experience. I have but you in the world, Haiti. Through you, I again take hold on life. Through you, I shall suffer. Through you, rejoice. And at the very end of the novel, Edmund will write a letter to a friend. Where he reveals the wisdom that he gained on his journey. And in the letter, he writes these words. Never forget that until the day when God shall deign to reveal the future to man. All human wisdom is summed up in these two words. Wait and hope. Wait and hope. For so much of his life, Edmund thought that revenge would give him the satisfaction and peace that he longed for. But trying to get even with those who had hurt him couldn't heal his own pain. He finally understood that as humans, we're too limited to carry out our own justice against those who have hurt us. Instead, he learned that we must wait on God leaving vengeance and justice in his hands alone. We're going through this Sermon on the Mount in what's particularly known as the Six Antitheses. And in this fifth antithesis, Jesus addresses this issue of vengeance and how, as his disciples, we are to respond to the injustices that we experience in our life. And before we read the passage, I want to say a word about the historical context in which Jesus spoke these words. By the time that Jesus has preached the sermon, Rome has occupied Jerusalem for over 90 years. And the thought of a pagan nation ruling over God's people was deeply offensive to the Jews. And under the particular rule of Pontius Pilate, Jews were executed regularly without a trial. It didn't take much for Pilate to kill a Jew. And there were even a number of notorious massacres that happened under Pilate's command. Pilate would steal money from the temple treasury to pay for his public projects like aqueducts. And so it's not surprising that the Jews hated their Roman occupiers. And some known as the Zealots even killed Roman soldiers whenever the opportunity presented itself. And they were very popular, these zealots, among the Jews. And the message being preached in the synagogues in those days was one of apocalyptic judgment coming to Israel's enemies. The rabbis would regularly pronounce woes against the Gentile nations. And then the rabbis also called the people of God to separate themselves from these outsiders to keep the purity of the people of God. And so not surprisingly, the Samaritans also wound up in the Jewish hate list because they were the product of the intermarrying of Jews with Gentiles. I hope this paints a picture of what the Jewish mindset was when Jesus uttered these words. Imagine, in fact, if you were a Jew living in those times, what would have been your mindset? How would you have responded to the indignities and even the atrocities being committed by these Romans against your own people? Imagine if America was taken over by a foreign Muslim nation and they began imprisoning and killing Christians right here in the homeland. How do you think the church in America would respond to that? I'm pretty sure most American Christians would react the same ways that the Jews reacted to the Roman occupation. Which is, we got to fight back. we got to kill these guys. Because God is on our side, we can win this war. But then Jesus arrives on the scene and he doesn't behave like a patriotic Jew ought to. He, in fact, begins to do things that go totally against these Jewish sentiments, offending them. He ministers to the Samaritans as if they were Jews. And then, in fact, he even identifies a Samaritan as the hero of one of his stories, which was utter blasphemy. He heals a Roman centurion's servant. And to add insult to injury, he tells the Jews, I have not seen faith in all of Israel like this Gentile. And he's talking to the oppressor of his people. And then instead of calling his disciples to resist the infidels and reclaim the nation for God, he commands them to respond in a way that is utterly unthinkable to them. And that's the passage we're looking at this morning. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In light of the historical context that I just laid out for you, I think you can understand how offensive these words would have been to the Jews. I think truthfully, even as a modern Christian, we don't know what sense to make of this teaching, do we? Passages like this are the reason why we struggle so much with the Sermon on the Mount. Because in these type of words, Jesus sounds like a hopeless idealist with his head in the clouds, totally out of touch with reality. Because if you really, literally followed this, life doesn't work, does it? It's it's nonsensical. How can anyone realistically live like this? You would be crazy to even attempt this life. Well, let's walk through the teaching a little more in detail here to see if we can understand the heart of what Jesus is commanding his followers. Jesus begins by quoting the Old Testament. And there are three key passages in the Old Testament that outline what is known as, in Latin, lex talionis. Some of you may have heard that phrase before, lex Talionis, which literally means the law of retribution. The law of retribution. Let me give you one of the three right now. Exodus 21, 23 to 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, some of you may have heard this before, and it's, it's true. The main purpose for this law of retribution, as brutal as it sounds, was actually to prevent the continual escalation of violence as each side retaliates against the other. I mean, just look at conflicts like Palestine and Israel, just to see how easily violence escalates when both sides feel wronged by the other. And so what this lex talionis did was try to curb that violence and say, let the retaliation be proportional and then let it end there, period, finished. Look at Genesis 4:23 to 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me, If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This is justice, according to Lamech. Lamech's declaration illustrates how easily vengeance can escalate violence. You wound me, I will kill you. If anyone tries to hurt me, my revenge will be on a level that you can't even imagine what I will do back to you in my anger. And so this law of retribution was a way of containing that violence so that the punishment equals the crime. But if we ended there, I don't think we're really being honest to the fullness of the teaching here because there's a darker side to it that is a bit more unpleasant that I think we don't really want to deal with. And it comes out more clearly in one of the other three passages. In Leviticus 24, verse 19 to 20. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury, and then here is it, must suffer the same injury. Did you catch that last part? I hope you did because it's highlighted in yellow text okay, so you missed it then you're a little slow okay what is this um, sorry i didn't mean to, i don't know why i'm going off script so much this morning all right <laughs> did you hear that the one who inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury so the law of retribution is intended to curb the violence but it also we can't dodge this it demands retribution it demands justice. If someone, in other words, commits an evil and inflicts harm to someone else, then punishment must be meted out in a proportional way. It's even clearer in the third passage, Deuteronomy 19. 16 to 21, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Show no pity. Justice demands that those who are guilty get what they deserve and as the passage brings out this retribution is needed to act as a deterrent so that others can learn from that punishment and avoid committing that same evil themselves and i think at some level this makes sense to us you need a system of justice for a society to function properly don't you and not to descend Into the anarchy of Lamech. I mean, without some sense of law like this, how do you keep evil in check? There needs to be a punishment for a crime. But now here's the thing right after quoting this Old Testament command, Jesus does something utterly radical. Jesus replaces the law of retribution with the response of mercy and peace-seeking. Matthew 5, 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? What does Jesus mean when he says, don't resist an evil person? Is Jesus arguing against any form of law and order? Is Jesus arguing that every nation ought to dismantle their military and their police force? I don't think so. And I'm not going to get into it this week because I don't want to be distracted by it. But next week when I preach, I'm going to actually talk a little bit about some of the side issues here like just war theory and self-defense and things like that. But I I don't want to focus on that right now because I think it can serve as a distraction. And I don't think that's the point of Jesus' teaching here. To better understand what Jesus means when he says, do not resist an evil person, I think it's most helpful to look at the four examples that he gives for what that actually looks like lived out by a disciple. And so in as thirty-nine, verse 39 continues, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In ancient times, slapping someone on the cheek was seen as a public insult, a way to humiliate someone in the eyes of others. And so often someone in great authority, a greater authority, like a leader or even a Roman soldier, someone like that, may very well do that to someone of lower station, to slap them in public. And... And what Jesus is saying is that to offer your other cheek is to willingly put yourself in a vulnerable position to be humiliated even further by not defending yourself and retaliating when someone has done that to you. Then he goes on in verse 40. And if anyone wants to, sh- to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In this next example, Jesus shifts to the setting of a lawsuit where someone is trying to take your shirt in court. Now, let me give you again some historical explanation here. In those days, men basically wore two layers. Actually, three if you count their loincloth, okay, which is basically like their underwear. They wore this thin full-length tunic, which was very thin, almost like long johns, okay? And that is what's being referred to when it says that someone is trying to take your shirt. That's the inner tunic. And then what they would wear over that tunic is a long overcoat like a robe. Okay? And that's what Jesus is referring to when he calls it a cloak. Now that cloak was actually very symbolic in Israel. It was one of the most personal and prized possessions that an Israelite man could possess. And so when you made a promise to someone and gave a pledge, one of the ways that you could symbolize that pledge is by removing your cloak and giving it to that person. But that cloak was considered such a basic necessity to life that what it actually says in the law of Moses is if you give a pledge by giving your cloak, that person by law must return that cloak to you by sunset because a Jewish man would use that cloak like a blanket. You would sleep in it, otherwise you would freeze to death. And so to rob a man of his cloak was like removing something that was so vital to their existence that it was considered a heinous crime. And what Jesus says is really something remarkable. If someone sues you and takes your shirt, your tunic, offer him your cloak as well, even if he's not even going after it. Even if you by law have every right to say you cannot take this from me. You may take my tunic, but you cannot take my coat. By law, Jesus says give up that right and give him your coat. And then in verse 41, Jesus says this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I think this is the the hardest one for us to identify with because this scenario makes no sense. Why in the world would somebody force us to walk a mile with them? Unless they're like a personal trainer or something like that, right? Um, But again, we need the historical understanding of what's going on here because in ancient times, particularly members of the military had the power to force civilians into unpaid labor such as carrying loads a far distance. Just literally you could be walking down the street and you can point to anyone on there and treat them like a slave and make them do your bidding as a soldier. We actually see this example of this custom in play at the crucifixion of Jesus. When a Roman centurion just grabs Simon of Cyrene out of a crowd, this poor guy, and he says, hey you, uh, carry this cross for Jesus. That's an example of this, what it means when someone forces you to walk a mile. And so you can imagine anyone forced into this kind of labor, almost like a slave, would have seen this as a horrible abuse of power and a violation of their personal freedom. But what Jesus says in that scenario is rather than resisting someone from, when they're giving you such a humiliating order, He says to his disciples, see if you could be even more helpful in that situation and say, wow, this is pretty exhausting. I carry this this mile, but do you need me to go another mile with you and help you out? I mean, even as I explain that historical context, I I really don't think this has much impact on us. Because it's just so far removed from anything we experience in real life. But let me just see if I can translate it into a scenario that possibly could happen. What if you had a real jerk of a boss, okay? And a few times a year he goes on vacation and he asks you to dog sit for him. This dog that he has that's like a dog from hell. And he asks you to do it because he's going to go to Hawaii in the cold of January, And he's the type of boss that if you refuse his request, will find ways to punish you as your superior. And so you really cannot say no to this guy. you got to watch his dog. But then you not only agree to watch this dog and three times a day go out in the freezing cold of a Chicago winter and take care of this horrible beast, but you actually decide to take his dog to the vet for a checkup. And then after that, you take the dog to the groomers and get groomed. And you pay for this all out of your own pocket, all without even being asked by your boss to do it. Now, can I ask this? Would any of you think of even doing this? I think most of you would say, No way. There's not a chance. I would do that for my boss. And what I'm trying to get at is this. The fact that none of us would even consider doing that shows us how insulated we are from the impact of what Jesus was saying to that original audience. The radical nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how we are to respond when people mistreat us. Like this. I don't think most of us as Christians have experienced the full weight of these words. Of what the life of a disciple ought to really look like. And then in verse 42 he says, give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This last example that Jesus offers is someone who asks to borrow money from you. And he says, rather than refusing that request, he says, give them what they want. The specific wording in this verse may suggest that the person who is asking for the money is likely poor, and you pretty well know that they're not going to have the means of paying you back on that loan. And to that really uncomfortable scenario, Jesus says, loan them the money anyway. Jesus Captures this same sentiment in another passage in Luke chapter 6, 35 to 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus is describing a situation that would be uncomfortable for any one of us. And the truth is, in that scenario, there may be so many justifications that we can give for why lending that person the money is the totally wrong thing to do. But Jesus says, as you're wrestling with that, if anything, if you are one of my followers, lean toward that side of generosity, knowing very well that you may never get that money back from that person. Now let me say this, if all of this is not making you a little bit uncomfortable, you are not hearing Jesus' words clearly about the radical nature of what he wants from his disciples. Because in all four of these scenarios, someone is showing abusive behavior, treating us as if we were an enemy. And in each one of these situations, Jesus calls us to respond to that person as if they were a dear friend. And that makes no sense, does it? I think as Americans, we're constantly taught to, quote, stand up for your rights. It's the air we breathe. Kids are taught this, rights language, from day one in school. Because it's woven into the very DNA of what it means to be an American. In fact, in our most revered document, the U.S. Declaration of Independence, in the very second sentence of that document, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To say that a right is unalienable or inalienable, it doesn't really matter, means that they are so basic to our humanity that no one has the right to take it away from us. That's the American ethos. And yet Jesus asks his followers to voluntarily give up what seem like the most basic rights that we have a right to claim in our lives for the benefit of others. Even those who position themselves as our enemies and are hostile toward us. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this The burden of the passage is this teaching attitude. Don't be asking yourself all the time, What's in it for me? What can I get out of it? The legalistic mentality which dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes much of one's rights. What Jesus is saying in these verses more than anything else is that his followers have no rights. They do not have the right to retaliate and wreak their vengeance. They do not have the right to their possessions nor to their time and money. Even their legal rights may sometimes be abandoned. And I want to ask you, this. Why in the world would anybody choose an approach to life like this? In fact, maybe we could turn this back on Jesus himself. Why would Jesus ask this of us? And I think it's this. It's because it is through a surrendered life of self-sacrifice that people will experience the kingdom of God and come to know Who Jesus is. You see, if we see our salvation only from the perspective of my security, my well-being, my happiness, then teaching like this makes absolutely no sense. It feels offensive, borderline cruel, and sadistic. But it makes total sense from a kingdom perspective. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus declaring the inbreaking of his kingdom into the kingdoms of this world, made visible by the witness of his disciples who embrace his values and live a radically countercultural life of self-surrender and self-sacrifice just as he did. Paul captures this missional dimension of this non-retaliatory peacemaking stance to even the most difficult relationships that we face in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That is the summary of this fifth antithesis that Jesus is teaching here. What does Paul mean, though, when he says that in treating people mercifully, we are, in essence, heaping, burning coals on their head? Dallas Willard explains it like this in The Divine Conspiracy. Our tormentors, no doubt, count on our resistance and anger to support their continuation of the evil that is in them. If we respond, as Jesus indicates, the force of their own actions pulls them off their stance and forces them to question what kind of people they are. As anger feeds on anger, so patient goodness will normally deflate it. Our response allows the kingdom of God with all its resources to begin its work. We are not passive, but we act always with clear-eyed and resolute love. We know what is really happening, seeing it from the point of view of eternity, and we know that we will be taken care of no matter what. We can be vulnerable because we are in the end simply invulnerable. I love the way that Willard puts it. He says, in that act of self-sacrifice and non-retaliatory pacifism, what He is saying is what you are in essence doing is leaving room for the kingdom of God to be at work in that difficult relationship. You are inviting God rather than you trying to engineer an outcome and trying to manipulate people to get them to do what you think they ought to do in the rightness of your own mind. You are leaving them in the hand of God and saying, God, you take control of this situation. The truth is, when you turn the other cheek, there is always a risk, isn't there? Because we don't know how that person is going to respond. Yeah, turning the other cheek may melt their heart, but it may actually invite further abuse, can't it? But what Paul is saying, what Willard is saying is, but we can let go of that because we're in God's hands. And so it's not as risky as you think it is. Because God cares for you and loves you. That's why I want to say that for the Christian, every fight is a fight of faith. Will or will we not believe the promises of God? If you've been at ICC any length of time, you've heard me say this over and over again. Every fight for a Christian is a fight for faith. Do I believe what Jesus is telling me? Do I believe that I am in his hands? And as a result of that, I don't always feel like I have to fight and claw my way to get my rights heard. hesitated sharing this. I wasn't sure whether it was the right illustration to share, but I don't know. I'll take a risk and I'll share it. Um, I have uh, a friend, and there was a time when he wanted to buy a car. And... Um, The whole situation really seemed not that great to me. But he gave me a really hard sell and really leaned very heavily on our friendship. So I gave him around $2,000 to buy this used car. And it turned out that the car was just, uh, it was actually sold by a a mutual friend, but the car was just a lemon, all right? And within the day of, getting the car, he realized that he had bought a junker. And so before the week was out, he actually got rid of the car. And so he sold it. But he sold it at a huge loss. And I said, "Uh, can I have my money back from the sale of that car? But here was the thing. Was he took such a loss that in his logic, it was like, well, why can't we share the loss? As friends. And he never gave me any of that $2,000 back. And uh, (laughs) a couple years after that, we were in this kind of joint venture together and had access to a mutual bank account. And about a year into this project, um, I was looking at the ledgers and there was $10,000 unaccounted for and i realized that he had taken that 10 grand out of that account and i had to confront him and it was one of the most unpleasant and difficult meetings i've ever had to have with a friend and both of us were crying i was screaming <laughs> I was screaming bloody murder. I wanted to wring the guy's neck. And the truth is that $10,000 is gone. Never saw a penny of that again. And I remember in that moment thinking, this friendship is over. There is nothing left of this. Trust has been broken so deeply. There's no point here. But this is when God began to really work on my heart and said, why? Why is this relationship over? I said, well, because, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? I'm not going to be another sucker. It's a toxic relationship. And yet somehow God was doing this work on my heart. And the craziest thought was, it's just money. It's just money. And this is a child of God made in his image. And against every instinct, I forgave him and continued to pursue the friendship. And the amazing thing is that to this day, we remain as close friends. And I love him as a brother. And I don't know how to square all this in my head. Because I'm still out $12,000 because of this guy. (laughs) But somehow, in the grace of God, there has been amazing healing in this relationship. I hesitate to share that story because I realize it puts me in a really good light. And I know I'm not generally this good. I'm really not. I also hesitated to share this story because I'm afraid many of you'll come to me looking for loans now. Please don't do that either. Okay, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I'm just kidding. All right. If if you need some money, talk to one of the elders. All right. right. Um, Paul says this to the Corinthians who are. Suing each other. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Who talks like this? I think we need new eyes to see the radical values of the kingdom. And what it means to put others first and put money and possessions and rights as a way, way distant second. Because it is only when the people of God can inhabit those values that people can see the reality of this kingdom come in our world. First Peter chapter two, and I'll close with this before we go into communion. Who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the Shepherd and overseer of your souls. How can Jesus? let go of this law of retribution. He can do it because he himself bore the punishment of our sin. And if you are struggling to live this life of grace to those who are hurting you in life, I think what Jesus is saying is then you do not understand what I have done for you. Because while you were my enemy, while you hated me and ran from me and denied me, I gave my life for you. That is the only way we can live this impossible life is when we understand what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. I recognize that even as I share these words, there's a million footnotes probably floating in your hand. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what if? And I I think that truthfully, there's there's probably a million scenarios we can create in our head as exceptions to this rule. And the truth is, and I'm going to get into that a bit next week, there is wisdom needed here. There is wisdom needed here. I think there may very well be legitimate times when it may not be right to lend somebody money. But my worry is, we so easily dodge the radical nature of this command of Jesus by hiding behind these loopholes and say, yeah, well, I get that, but I think this is an exceptional case here, and I don't really think that's what Jesus wants here. I just think, though, what it would be like for this world to experience Christians who go into the lives of others and even when people mistreat us, even when they insult us, even when they take advantage of us. Rather than tit for tat and returning pain with our own pain against them, we were to turn the other cheek and to show generosity and grace and mercy. I know that that can sound like a death sentence. But what Jesus says is that's actually the road that leads to the true life that you actually want. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever tries to find their life, they're the ones who are truly lost. It's not until you truly learn the mystery of letting go and entrusting yourself to God that you experience the true beauty of and power of that life that Christ modeled for us. We are here this day as the people of God with the freedom to worship him in his name and be accepted by him because of what Christ has done for us. And as much as we glory in that grace that was shown to us, Jesus says, show that same mercy to those who are attacking you and abusing you and hurting you. And the only way that we do that is if we totally depend on him and his grace for us. We come to this table now as a declaration of our need for that grace. This is not about willpower. It's not about high character. This is about a life of utter dependency on the one who alone can give us the power to live such a life. And so as we come to this table, let it be a reminder to all of us that once we too were enemies of God and yet in his love and kindness toward us in his richness of mercy he has given us the privilege of being called sons and daughters of God so on the night that he gathered his disciples in the upper room for this final Passover meal he broke bread with them and said this is my body broken for you And then he took the cup of wine and gave it to them and said, this cup represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you take of the bread and take of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. So as we take of this bread right now as a church family and take of the cup, let's be reminded of the love and the grace that Christ had for us as we think about what he is asking of us in our own relationships. Let's take first from the bread and then take from the cup And then you can just pause and just pray for a couple of minutes as the worship team will lead us in a time of closing prayer. And I will give a a word of prayer uh, before they actually lead us in the closing praise. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that the words uttered by your Son are not just difficult to understand, but difficult to accept. It's hard to imagine how a good God could ask his people to live what seems like such a reckless life. So what we ask in this moment is that you would grant To us, the faith of your son, Jesus Christ. Who surrendered all of his rights. That we might be the beneficiaries of his mercy. And as much as we rejoice in and glory in his grace given to us. We pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit. We too might become little Christs. Who represent you in this world. And declare your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And let that will be carried out through our own crucified lives. That others might come to know of the love of God through our surrendered life. As we pray all this in Christ's name.